It is your money. I'm Susie Jones, and we welcome you to the program and reminding you right out of the gates that if you have any financial question for Peg or for Bruce, you can call this number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is 1-888-6-ADVICE. And you can also email questions at any time to yourmoneyatwealthenhancement.com. But for the next hour, you can text this line or call it 651-461-9226. Now, here is Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor Peg Webb and the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and Financial Advisor Bruce Helmer. Welcome to both of you today. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Bruce. Hello, Peg Webb. Hello, Susie Jones. Uh, ladies, always good to be with you. Hey, Peg and Susie, um, we're going to try to do open lines today, meaning Peg and I don't have a topic. Uh, listeners uh, that uh, listen on a regular basis are probably familiar with our usual format that most of the first half of the show or all the first half of the show, we will cover a, a particular topic and then open it for questions. Today, we don't have anything specific. We're opening it up for questions right away. And, uh, and But, Peg, the nature of our show and just our daily workings with, with clients, um, we build up some questions that maybe um, we can use to start and, and then get listeners involved. Do you have anything on, on your plate that you've been getting from clients or anything at yourmoney.com that you want to go to? Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, tell the audience that we should stick to money questions, Bruce, because <laughs> <laughs> we we get a lot of questions in our um, reviews at Wealth Enhancement Group. And I thought today maybe we stick with money because we can get super personal with our clients, which I love because I feel like I have my arms around them and their families and and. Uh, and just love to be able to help them. So we, I understand when I was gone a couple weeks ago, um, you did an open line show and it was very successful, but there was one question that you did not get to. And so I think we just start with that one, if that's okay, Bruce. Yeah, I think the one you're referring to, um, somebody said, you know, with, with rising interest rates, they have more debt than they would like to have. Um, because the interest rate went up, so the amount of monthly obligation to debt service also went up. They're talking about their their mortgage, their credit cards, student loans. Um, And when they look for help online to try to figure out how to attack that debt, like what do you pay off first, what do you pay off second, or what's the best way to reduce or eliminate debt, there's conflicting advice when they try to look that up on the Internet. So how do you coach people when you get that question? Back. <clears throat> yeah, when um, especially when new people uh, take us up on our, um, you know, basically free introduction meeting, and they, they usually come in with a couple of burning questions, and one is usually debt. And we've often said on this show that there's a couple types of debt. There's efficient debt and inefficient debt. Well, efficient uh, just means that you probably have an asset that's backing that loan. Uh, An easy explanation of that would be like a house, you know, something tangible. I don't necessarily think cars are a great asset, but at least they do 
have some value. So if you take a loan out on that type of um, purchase, then we're usually okay with that. The one credit card, um, you know, debt, like credit card debt is just, (laughs) I have to laugh, Bruce, because I was like the queen of credit cards um, when I first was in college because my parents never used credit cards. So I didn't even understand them. I didn't understand that Well, I understood that you had to make a monthly payment, but what I didn't know is that the more you spent, the bigger the payment was monthly. And so I actually worked in retail as a side job when I was in college. And then, you know, they give you breaks when you're on retail. And so I would shop around and I go, oh, my mother would love this. My brother would love this. I was buying things on this credit card. And all of a sudden, the payments started to get higher. And uh, so I learned the lesson the hard way. But we don't like um, inefficient debt where when you walk out of that retail store, you probably have lost 80% uh, of the value of whatever you bought. So what we do as a practice is we look at all the debt and then examine, you know, what's good, what's bad, and then try to figure out, well, how do you pay off bad ones? Um, most people think I need, well, number one, you need to make the minimum payment, right? But a lot of times um, clients are trying to make payments on all of them, a little bit extra on all of them. Whereas we coach that maybe you just tackle one of them and get rid of one of them. So put all your extra cash flow on one and eliminate one. So I'm not a big fan, Bruce, of, of using credit cards if you don't have to, because why I just looked this up. This is out of curiosity. What is credit cards paying the are charging you these days? Thirty one percent. I mean, can you even believe that? Thirty one percent. So, Bruce. Yeah, I you know, and again, I you can shop around for better rates. I mean, I'm, I, I take you at your word because I didn't research it, that that is the average. I think there are better deals out there, and you get better deals with better credit, right? So we talked on the show before about credit rating. Better credit rating gets you better terms and conditions when you do borrow. But uh, I agree with you 100%, Peg. If you've got multiple debts, I, I see the same thing. A lot of people put a few bucks extra every month to all of them, and they end up just spinning their wheels like they're in the snow or mud. If you concentrate on the most onerous one first until you eliminate that one and then go after the second one, that's going to be far more efficient for you. But, you know, and, and I, I hate to say this, but I can't not say it. Ideally, you don't find yourself into that, in that position in the first place. And I understand sometimes it's inevitable, and I understand this rising interest rate environment caught some people by surprise. But, you know, again, ideally you don't spend more than you make. You live within your means, and you don't have big balances on credit cards and other bad or inefficient debt. Mortgage is fine. Student loans, fine. Those are, those are things that improve your chance to increase your income or you're, you, you took out debt on a on a on an asset that's increasing in value, plus you have to live somewhere. So again, I understand that it's that bad consumer debt. It's that things we want that we don't need that end up getting most of us in trouble. 
Susie, we got anyone uh, with questions yet? Yeah, we sure do. 651-461-9226. The texter writes, how might we keep our investments safe if the debt ceiling crisis goes to a worst-case situation? How does that affect us with our investments? Great question, Peg. Well, <clears throat> well, there's a lot of headlines today about this uh, debt ceiling, um, including uh, maybe using a, a amendment that was in the 1800s here. So I, I don't, um, you know, blame people right now for wondering what's going to happen. I personally um, feel like it is always this anticipation and then all of a sudden they wave a magic wand and and we just raise the debt ceiling and we go on and live happily ever after. I think it is um, quite negative on how high the debt ceiling is today and, you know, continuing to grow. So, Bruce, I don't really know. um, Yes, what I do know is it would be volatile in the markets if they don't figure out something before uh, they need to. But I I don't feel like it's going to be a long-term negative impact. Bruce? Yeah, I kind of agree with that, Peg. And, and, And again, we go to great lengths as a firm and on this show to not be political. We are apolitical. We try to look at economic realities without taking political sides. The debt ceiling issue becomes a political you know, ball that they bounce back and forth and, and both sides blame the other. But just for clarity for listeners, raising the debt ceiling is not writing a permission slip for us to buy more stuff. Raising the debt ceiling is giving permission to pay the invoice when the bill comes. We've already spent the money. And for the U.S. to default on its debt, I think would be horribly bad for the overall economy. But again, I think, Peg, people are looking at this as, you know, June 1st is kind of the date that the the Fed chairman has thrown out there. But it's not like all of our obligations (laughs) all come due on June 1st and we're defaulting on everything June 1st is the date where we probably have to do some shifting of assets to pay something, and, and, and maybe we delay paying something else. If, I'm, I'm trying to, to explain how the government works in, in using our own personal financial situation um, as, as the metaphor or as the comparison, which in some ways is not logical, but in other ways it is, and it helps people to understand it. So imagine you went out and bought a bunch of stuff, and now you're getting the invoices, and you just said, eh, I'm not going to pay it. The heck with it. That is that is not a prudent thing to do, nor is that a prudent thing for our government to do. And we've been down this road before where they're debating this and debating that, and they end up cooler heads prevail, and in the 11th hour we figure something out. I hope that's what happens this time. I think that's what happens. But if we do start to default on debts, I agree with you, Peg, It'll be short-lived, and we'll come to some sort of solution shortly after June 1st because, again, I think failure to do so would be horrifically bad on the economy. And I also don't blame people for worrying about it. But the other thing, Peg, that I wonder, and I'm going to throw it back to you in the form of a question, don't you think – we talk all the time about the markets being forward-looking uh, instruments. 
don't you think that a lot of this is already priced in? Don't you think the fear of what's going on in Washington is already part of the reason the markets have been sputtering? Yeah, um, our um, personal economists and um, investment team has, you know, told us over and over and over that the probability of recession, you know, in the next 12 months is inevitable. And we've seen, Bruce, that earnings for companies um, are just recently finished reporting and on average, you know, they're all down 3.7% on average in earnings. So we think that is the path that we're taking and that the Fed is probably not going to be able to, you know, have this whole inflation um, under control. And so they talk about these hard landing, soft landing, and, you know, they're trying to have a soft landing where we really don't even feel the fact that we're trying to get this inflation down and, and that the market, we want the markets to remain, you know, um, calm about everything. But that, that, that you hit it on the head, Bruce, you know, all the things I just said are already built in the market. And the, and the hardest thing about being an investor, uh, it, it, especially if you're trying to be a short-term investor versus our clients are long-term invest, investors, is that, you can't wake up one day and go, oh, now I get it. This is what, you know, is happening, and now I'm going to buy, right? Because the the markets are, I want to say they're about six months ahead in anticipating what's going to happen. And so you can't be an investor that just wakes up one day and go, okay, now that the announcement has been made, I'm going to go buy something. Bruce? Yeah, I'll, and I'll close on this one uh, on this topic with this. You know, I'm glad you brought up um, recession because recession is measured by gross domestic uh, product (GDP), and uh, technically, the the definition of of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So now you tie that in with the debt, and I agree with what you said earlier, Peg. The national debt is too high. Everybody knows regardless of political affiliation, the government spends too much and has been spending too much. The difficulty is is determining where do you cut spending, because a lot of this spending was a result of COVID and trying to help people not go into financial ruin through no fault of their own, but because of a global pandemic. So I think both sides of the aisle and most people would say that was money the government had to spend to help these people. So knowing where to cut is always the tricky part of this. But the other thing is, when we look at the overall health of the economy, yes, we look at debt. But again, I'm going to, I'm going to metaphorically use an individual balance sheet to make my point. What's even more important than just the debt as it stands alone is debt as a percentage of the GDP. Or on your own balance sheet, if you said, I have a million dollars worth of assets and $100,000 worth of debt, that's a debt-to-asset ratio of 10%. Now, if my debt doubled to 200000 but my balance sheet, my assets went to $10 million, I have twice as much debt, but that's a much stronger balance sheet. That's how we look at the U.S. economy. The debt doesn't matter as much if we have a strong, growing GDP, where we get in trouble with this debt, and this is what we're looking at now, is if we have a shrinking economy or GDP is going backwards. So there are reasons for people to be concerned, but again, 
I think assuming that cooler heads prevail and they figure something out either before June 1st or shortly thereafter, there's still a lot of reasons to also be optimistic about this economy. And I don't want people to go into full-blown panic and not be able to sleep at night just because of this debt ceiling issue. Peg, last thoughts or another question from Susie? Well, I, Bruce, that was actually very well said. No, let's go to Susie. All right, very good. 651-461-9226. This is an interesting question that just came in. Mom, the texter writes, Mom and Dad put their house in our name, the kids, 10 years ago to protect the asset from potential long-term care costs. Mom has since da- died, and Dad wants to sell the house. The quit quit claim deed was set up as a living estate. If we just sign the house back over to dad, are there any financial implications for the kids as part of that transaction? Are we gifting it back? Question mark. Peg, this is a really complex question, and I, I understand all the, all the concepts that the texture is asking, the reference to quit claim deed and so forth. But I've got to defer to you on this. I'm not sure how to answer this question. Um, do you understand it? And do you know what you would uh, advise? Well, I, <clears throat> I understand the question, that's for sure, because this comes up a lot in our practice and with our own clients. And first of all, I want to just address um, Susie, as she was reading it, said the reason that they have the kids on the house is so that they can't pull the house away from them if they need long-term care. Because, and this is a big issue, Bruce, and, and you know this, we hear this a lot. And the question is, is that a good thing to do? Or is that kind of skirting having all of us, the taxpayers, pay people who are taking advantage of the rules as they are today. So it's not anything that they're trying to do under the table or anything like that. But um, we're fully aware of some clients do it and some clients, you know, morally just won't do it. So I just want to put that out on the table because I'm sure there's listeners out there that's saying, how could they do this? Um, So then once you put the house in the kid's name, then, you know, they're going to be subject to, and there, there's no mention here, has the house grown in value? Because that's where the um, attorney needs to come in and say, okay, if you're going to transfer it back, <clears throat> if you're going to transfer it back, and even if you want to gift it, you can't get out of that gain, if you will. Um, and then you have the rules about if you own a house, you know, there is some tax free gain. But now that you probably put this in this, uh, you may have put it in a trust, the rules on trust are different than if it's in individual names. So Bruce, you hit it on the head and said, this is a complex one. And it is. So if somebody came into me or if a client started asking me about, you know, um, the legal side of this, the tax side of this, I would definitely refer to our roundtable because we both have legal people and CPAs. Um, and that's why I feel comfortable doing this job because they don't have to know everything about everything and keep up with everything uh, that we have the resources in house to say, oh, look at this scenario, Bruce. 
Yeah, and we're almost due for a break, and, and I know we've got uh, listeners also on the phone right now. I don't think we have time to take a phone call and, and be able to answer the question before a break, but just last thought on that last question. Peg, it's almost more or at least partly a legal question, um, and even though as financial advisors we talk about estate planning or legacy planning and the importance of having a will, we also can't practice law if we're not an attorney, and I think some of that you almost have to be an attorney to answer the question. But really quickly for listeners, part of the question was a reference to a quit claim deed. Can you quickly tell listeners what that is, and then we're due for a break? Um, <clears throat> well, in essence, it just is when somebody passes away, it, it actually assigns the asset to a different group of people. It's another legal tool. It's another yeah, legal another. tool. Yes. All right. All right. Should we jump in here and remind people listening? It is your money. You have time right now to text a question to Peg or Bruce at 651-461-9226. And our phone is available to you as well if you want to actually call us. We'd love to talk to you on the air. We have Glenn waiting to talk in just a couple of minutes. We're going to take a short break and back with your calls and texts after this. It is your money. If you're just tuning in, you have on our news lines, Peg Webb, Bruce Helmer, Wealth Enhancement. We also want you to write this down if you're listening, your money at wealthenhancement.com. That's a website you can use any time to email a question to Bruce or to Peg or to all the fine folks at Wealth Enhancement. Welcome back, Bruce and Peg. I understand before we get to our caller, Glenn, you had something you'd like to say. Bruce? Well, yeah, Susie, thank you. Peg and Susie and all moms, I owe you all an apology. I didn't say anything at the start of the show. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Gosh, we were wondering. We're sitting here waiting. We're waiting for you to say it. I knew. I knew. Yesterday I thought about it. I thought about the show, and I thought about the irony again of the fishing opener in Minnesota and Mother's Day. It's been on my mind, and, and I totally spaced it out to start the show. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Somebody really smart, a lot smarter than me, once said, Mom is God's greatest gift to mankind. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yeah. We wouldn't be here without her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Bruce. It's a, it's a truly special day. Um, I would say being a mom is probably one of the best decisions that I've ever made. And to all the moms out there, um, I do kind of feel like we're special in that uh, we just have a, I would say moms have a lot on their plate. Not that dads don't, and uh, and your day is coming, but happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Wonderful. Should we get Glenn on our on the line with us here with the ask a question of the both of you? Yeah. For sure. All right, Glenn, go ahead. You're on the air with Bruce and Peg. Yeah, this rain's probably a curse for all the fishermen uh, fishing up there and without their wives. But anyway, uh, <laughs> quick claim. I got a little uh, uh, farmhouse, or uh, we live in a little farm place. The assessed value is about two seventy five or something like that, less than three hundred. I'd like to sell i'd like to give it to my son i'd like to sell but is it like can i sell it to him for like a hundred thousand or what's the least i can sell something like that without sitting there holding a big tax penalty bag hey glenn thanks for listening and thanks for your question 
so Peg, this is one, you know, again, that, that we get from time to time, um, and, and not just in farming, but it could be a, could be a family business, that, you know, so, some sort of, of legacy where you want to pass on the, the family business, farming, or whatever it is, from generation to generation. But, and I don't know exactly what the rules are. I'm hoping you can have more specific information. But this idea of trying to sell it at a deep discount to, to a certain extent is just not going to work because if it doesn't pass the IRS, what I would call smell test, you know, they're going to come back at you and say this was not a reasonable transaction. This had way more value than what you, what you sold it for. But I don't know the specifics or what other strategy someone could use. Right, so I guess that's really the question. What's an efficient way to maintain legacy assets within a family, whether it's a farm or a small business or whatever it is? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about this. This is once again in the in the first part of the show I talked about um, you know quick claim deeds. We got that question, but then it all comes back to there's a tax side of it, and there's actually a gifting side to this, which is a legal side. And so when you're thinking about a business, or now this may be. Um, uh, maybe it's not a business, it's, it's, a, it's a house or it's um, barns or, you know, you're, you're transferring that asset to someone else. Two people really need to be um, contacted, and that's the tax side and the legal side. When it comes to the legal side, I just want to talk a little bit about gifting because Glenn brought this up. Can I just gift it to them? Well, we are under gifting rules. And the rules say you can give anybody, it doesn't have to be a relative, $17,000 or a value of a stock or some type of value, you know, each year without having to notify the government. So that's just the dollar amount that the government says you can give away. Um, and so if you have 10 people, you know, that you'd love to give money to, you could give 17,000 to 10 different people and not have to report that to the government. If indeed you go over that number, then you need to report the gift to the government. And the reason the government cares is because in um, our lifetime, right now, we can give away independently $12,920,000. And that's not going to have a gift tax to it. So if the, um, if the farm or the business or something like that, if it comes under those rules, then you could give that away. Now, in the state of Minnesota, the number is like $3 million, you know, um, somewhere around there. You may have some Minnesota estate, E-S-T-A-T-E, taxes to pay if you um, transfer that business. The other thing is, though, the tax side of it. So can you just give that, that entity or a business to someone without, you know, looking at the taxation of transferring ownership? And that's really what triggers tax is transfer of ownership. So that gets quite complex. And um, when our clients end up asking us questions about this, 
We actually do tax returns for clients if they want to engage us to do them. And then even if you're not a tax client of Wealth Enhancement Group, we utilize our roundtable for helping our clients figure out if that would be a good idea or what's the best strategic way, you know, to get that farm place or a business um, to the next generation. Bruce? Yeah, that Peg, that was a really good answer. I'm glad I'm glad you knew that better than I did. As you as you were answering, it was all making sense to me, but I couldn't spit it out as well <laughs> as you just did. Um, I like the way you broke it down between the tax issue and the gifting issue. But again, this idea of uh, to try to avoid taxes to, to have it be a sale and then and have the sales price be way below the fair market value, that's not an option. That's not going to work, right? <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm not a CPA. I'm not a, an attorney, but I would think it would be because, um, you know, let's just say that, uh, that it could bite you, right? If you did something and, you know, you got audited or something like that, it wouldn't be a grand surprise to me. That, um, that there might have been some avoidance in either, either on the legal side or the tax side. All right. All right. Wanna, yeah, yep. I got more questions for you. Uh, this Perfect. texter writes, are, inheritance, are inheritances in a trust taxed, and if so, is it before the funds are distributed or when the recipient files that year's tax return? That's a good question, right? Yeah. It is a good question. So, Peg, I, I think they're asking about taxation of assets held in a trust. And, of course, when they say trust, I presume that, that they mean a revocable or a living trust. Yeah. So when you have assets, what's more common is what's called a revocable trust. And all that means is, is during your lifetime, if you establish this trust, you're able to change it. So no big deal. No tax issues, you know, no legal issues other than changing the document while you're alive. The other type of trust is called irrevocable. That one you cannot change. So that's kind of a bigger decision. But here, if um, if there's any kind of an inheritance or, um, you know, uh, tax due, or anything like that, just think of this revocable trust as being as if it's in their own names. You know, the trust is really to name what happens when this particular person dies. That's it, right? There's no real tax savings or, you know, a lot of legal, um, you can't skip legal things like what I just talked about, like this estate tax, you've got to pay that. So, you definitely need to contact once again. If you have a financial advisor, talk to them or um, a CPA or an attorney, and probably in this case all three if the advisor doesn't have those people, you know, on a roundtable. Yeah, and the other thing, Peg, that that's a great answer. The other thing, though, that comes into play here is a lot of assets are going to have named beneficiaries on them, usually the will or the trust or whatever the legal documents are, that's going to cover things that you don't typically name a beneficiary on. So the, so the stuff, it might be the, the house, it might be belongings, it might be jewelry, it might be things with sentimental value. But the retirement plan, the investment account, 
all those, the bank account, those things are going to presumably, hopefully, have named beneficiaries, and the tax structure would, would be based on what the asset is. So, for example, if I inherit an IRA from my parents, I'm going to have to pay taxes on that IRA, and I have to actually take withdrawals and deplete that account value within a 10-year period of time, and I'm going to pay taxes. But if I inherit a non-qualified asset, the basis on that actually steps up to the value on the death of my parents. And if I sell it for that price, I don't recognize any taxes at all. So the, ta the, the question seemed to be at least in part about tax considerations and tax efficiency and minimizing taxes. And you're right, the trust is generally not a tax reduction strategy. It's a strategy just to make sure that when I leave this world, whatever's, uh, whatever's left goes where I want it to go as efficiently as possible. Susie? All right, 651-461-9226. You can call that line or you can text it as well. This texter writes, can you talk about PODs, payable on death? It's not much of an exact question, they say, more in general. Peg or Bruce? Yeah, P Peg, POD, same as a beneficiary, right? Yeah, so um, you have payable on death and TOD, which is transfer on death. And it's kind of similar to what you just talked about, Bruce, with these beneficiaries. So let's say you have a bank account and you wanted to avoid probate. Uh, you could put a payable on death or a transfer on death. Usually payable on death means it's the banking system. TOD, transfer on death, is usually in the brokerage uh, world. And so all it's saying is if you name somebody, then it will avoid going through any probate. It actually will just directly go uh, to your beneficiary. Bruce, I like what you said earlier about you know, Wealth Enhancement Group, and we, we kind of encourage people not to necessarily name a trust as a beneficiary, like a transfer on death or a payable on death, because uh, the distribution rules of when you take that asset, when you have to take those assets out, the required minimum distributions come into play. And also it may force um, the beneficiary through a trust to have to pay the taxes a lot earlier than if you name the beneficiaries. The same kind of thing here where a payable on death, you could name your trust. And there is an attorney that I work with outside of Wealth Enhancer Group. We can't write wills and trust documents at Wealth Enhancer Group. We can guide people on what the terms are of their existing existing estate plan or you know, give some coaching as to uh, what to do. But there's an attorney that I work with that a lot of times instead of putting everything in the trust name, he puts the trust as the beneficiary because that way all the things that they want to happen with their uh, monies will then be directed to whatever that trust says instead of, let's say you have 15 different beneficiaries. You know, that would be hard to do one of these PODs or payable on death to list 15 different people on as a beneficiary. So in that case, people do use trust there too. So Bruce? Yeah, and the other thing is the POD or the TOD will not happen automatically. You know, if it's a brokerage account or a bank account, 
you have to ask them to put that on there. They won't do it automatically, and we, uh, we encourage our clients all the time to review beneficiary designations, and they, and they end up surprised that accounts that they thought they had a beneficiary on, they don't because they didn't ask uh, for the bank or the brokerage house to do it. So you have to ask. Hey, Peg and Susie, I wanted to interject a couple things here really quickly. Okay. Peg, well, and when Susie, what I love so far about the show, and we've only got about six minutes left, is that everything we've been talking about today from listeners' questions have been financial planning issues, estate planning, legacy tax. There hasn't been anything about rate of return on my investment, which is usually where the conversations go. So this is both refreshing to me, but also it, 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 it validates or, or, or puts a spotlight on what we talk about all the time. The value of financial planning is not just managing money. It's all the other stuff and enhancing efficiency, reducing tax liability, making sure you have your ducks in a row when you, know, when you retire, if you leave this world. So all the stuff we're talking about is all the financial planning that is really the most value added for our clients. But the other thing, now I'm going to go to, to investments. I had this a couple times recently, um, questions from clients, so I wanted to get it in the show today because I was reminded this week I had a specific client. He texted me and he said, I see banks are paying 5.2% on a one-year CD with what I took as the implication being Maybe I should take my money and put it there. Well, that's a that's a uh, another spin on a question I get from time to time after the market's been bad. Occasionally, I'll have a client say, "Oh, well, I would have been better off in a passbook savings account, or I would have been better off if I buried it in my backyard." They, when when <laughs> there's years where the markets go down, you can always look at a short-lived period of time and say, "Yeah, I would have been better anywhere else." But you have to look at that over a reasonable period of time. So I just quick, before we came on air today, I just quick looked up the historical average rate of return on the S&P 500. The S&P has been around since 1957. From 1957 to the present, it's averaged about 10.2% per year. A year ago, before the bad year last year, it was about 11.2. So we lost about... 1% off that historical average from 1957, which tells me that long-term, if, if this money is money you're not going to spend anytime soon, even though we have more attractive interest rates now than we've had in a really long time, which is great for savers, not for borrowers, we still need some of our money in the stock market. This, oh, I'd be better off in this. You've got to look long-term. Peg, are you getting any of that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, but it, in our uh, in our economic outlook summary that we just sent out to our clients, uh, we believe that you know in the next twelve months. So right now, what we have is I want to just address this five percent quickly. That's a one year time frame. And if you look at the yield curve right now, where the short end of Treasuries is four and a half, you know, it got as high as 5% for a one year. But then you look out two years, five years, 10 years, 30 years, that yield is substantially lower than the one year. And historically, what that has meant is we are going back to lower interest rates and not far out in the future. Now, you may notice, and I've noticed this a lot this week, 
that's 5% headlines for CDs in all sorts of banks. But guess what they're adding to that CD? A provision that says six months from now, I can pull that CD from you and, and lower your interest rates. Well, why are they doing that? Because they believe interest rates are going to be lower. So when you look at this five, yeah, you'll get it for one year. But how do you then, you know, um, get five continuing every single year? Because they're not locking you in for that, Bruce. Great point, Peg. Thank you. Susie, can we sneak in one more question? I think we can. There are a number of them, 651-461-9226. We're talking about where to put your money. Someone says, what do you think of annuities? Peg, annuities. Annuities, um, just basically a definition is you're able to invest in uh, fixed and variable like the stock market within a chassis called an annuity. An annuity is just saying that from the early on definition is if you'd like to tax defer your earnings, you may want to you know, put your assets inside an annuity. Um, I, I believe annuities have their place, right? So um, there are some features and benefits on annuities like this tax deferral. Some insurance companies, uh, they issue them. Some insurance companies give you, um, you know, some more um, assurance that you're going to get income for the rest of your life. I think there's a place out there for them. Um, and we do have them in our practice. Okay. And so, Bruce, I don't know. That's all I... I, can I ask you guys a quick follow-up, Bruce? I know you want to probably yeah. respond to that. Back to the, no, certi- the certificate of deposit. So if you've got money like in a an emergency cash fund that you, that it's in a savings department, so you have 2000 and you don't need it right away, but why not put it in a six-month CD to bump it up to 5% and... Or is that just lock it in and you can't get it? And I'm sorry, we have a minute left. So if you can do it, great. If not, go ahead. No, no. Susie, that's not a bad idea. To get the best interest rate you can on your safe money is fine and it makes sense. And even if you surrender the CD early, even with the penalty, you probably still are going to earn more net interest than just leaving it in a totally liquid account. Okay. So that, that, no, that's not a bad idea at all. That's my personal question. <laughs> Thanks, that's you guys. Great. It was a great show. We got a lot of questions in and a lot of ones we didn't get to. So we want to make sure that we let people listening right now. Wealthenhancement.com, wealthenhancementgroup.com or 888-6-ADVICE. You can call them or talk to them anytime if you want to follow up on your question. Have a wonderful week. Happy Mother's Day, guys. Good to talk to you as always.